Open your Bibles to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 2. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 7, Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 7. You know, people love stories. People absolutely love stories. If you begin a sermon once upon a time, normally every head sort of pops up. They just love stories. And especially, I think, people love rescue stories. They love the rescue stories. The, the story where the main character is in, uh, surrounded by their enemies and facing you know, imminent extinction. And then, out of some unexpected sort of place, the hero arrives at the last moment and saves the day, right? Those are the kind of stories people love to hear. And I think the reason that people love to hear those kinds of stories is because somewhere way back in the deep collective memory of mankind, there resides the original rescue story. The original rescue story in which mankind hopelessly lost and outmatched by Satan. The promise of a deliverer was given. That one would arise from the seed of the woman and would crush the serpent's head and would rescue humanity from the devastation of sin into which they had fallen. And so civilizations and cultures the world over have their hero stories. And I think ultimately that's why. They've adopted and adapted the longing that lies deep within their, within their hearts and into their myths and their legends, into their art and their literature. But this phenomena of the rescue story. Only small fragments, really, of the true story remain. Most have been sinfully distorted, but there still remains that kernel that against all odds, at the moment of greatest need, the hero will arrive, the rescuer will come and deliver his people. Well, beloved, the gospel is the original rescue story. It is the true story. It is the original story. It is that from which every other rescue story in every other culture is but at best a shadow and an imitation. This morning, we're going to trace that old, old story as Paul details it for us here in the second chapter of Ephesians, beginning in verse 1 and running through verse 7. And in these verses together, we're going to see three aspects of God's rescue story that are essential to our life as a follower of Christ. Three main aspects. You could almost call it three movements, or if this was a trilogy, these would be the three books of the great rescue story. The first aspect is our desperate condition in verses 1 through 3. And now we covered this in a fair amount of detail last week, and so we don't have time to go into it again at that level, so we're going to just sort of remind you and pass over, but it's significant and it's important and it's essential in order for the second part of the story to make any sense at all. So it begins with our desperate condition. 
And here in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, we noted last time that, that basically God is diagnosing the human condition. He is diagnosing the human condition, and, and as he diagnoses the human condition, he arrives at the disease, and then its symptoms, and then the outcome of that disease. And so it begins with the, the diagnosis of the disease itself here in verse 1, and it's simply this, that all mankind is spiritually dead. And he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In other words, although alive in body and mind, we're dead in our soul. Dead in our soul. That is, there is no life within the soul. We are blind to the glory of Christ and unresponsive to the word of Christ. This was our former condition. You see where Paul says, you were dead. He's writing to the believing church here. This was your state. You were dead. We did not love Christ. We did not long to be with Christ in fellowship. These are the conditions of the dead. Like the physically dead cannot communicate with the living, so we too could not, as spiritually dead, communicate with the living God. As the physically dead have no power to bring themselves back to life, to resuscitate themselves, so we too, the spiritually dead, were unable to do anything to regenerate our own heart. We were dead. That's the disease. Paul goes on here in verses 2 and 3 with the symptoms of the disease. And that is that we were spiritually we were sinfully driven in this condition of spiritual deadness. Spiritually dead and then sinfully driven. In our state of spiritual death and unbelief, we, we conducted our everyday life under the powerful control of three forces. Three powerful forces. And Paul outlines them here for us. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. That's the first powerful force that exerts control over those without Christ. We noted again last time where it says, according to, the, the word is kata in the, in the Greek, and it means under the control of. In your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, that is, in which you formerly conducted your life, you were living under the control of the course of this world. The world, we noted again, was mankind in its organized opposition to God and his purposes. This is the world system in which we live, it is the prevailing value system of the world. It is the, the ideas arranged in opposition to God. It is, the, it is the world of mankind with their fists raised and saying, we will not have this man rule over us. It manifests itself in all kinds of ways. False religions. Secularization. Hedonistic spirit. All in defiance and opposition to God. And, and Paul says the symptom of our disease is that we, without Christ, this is what controlled us. This is what drove us. This is what ordered our agenda. This is what set our priorities. This was the very goal of our lives. He goes on. 
the second powerful force, where he says, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So we were not only dominated by and controlled by the world and its opposition to God, but we also were under the control of the devil himself, the, the chief leader among the powers of darkness. The spiritual forces that have arrayed themselves against God from the beginning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul speaking there says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. It's blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So we find ourselves under the domination of the world and under the domination of the devil. And, and then third, Paul says over here in in uh, where he says, the, uh, the spirit of this world that is now working in the sons of disobedience, he goes on and he says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So we lived under the control of the flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh is, is our fallen, self-centered human nature that arrays itself against God. Paul says that we indulged the lusts of our flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In other words, that we were actively creating idols, substitutes for God and His glory. We noted last time that the mind is an idol factory. It is constantly ginning out substitutes for God, grotesque substitutes. By the very mercy of God, most of which don't actuate themselves in space and time, but far too many do. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And the mind set in opposition to God, the mind set on its own self-gratification and fulfillment, produces the most corrupt thinking and ultimately the most corrupt doing. And so under the power of the world and the flesh and the devil, in our state of spiritual deadness, finally Paul gives us the outcome. The outcome, which is that we are shockingly destined. Shockingly destined. Again, verse 3. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Children of wrath. Children suited for wrath. Children destined for wrath. Children deserving of wrath. Again, last time, we talked about the fact that we are conceived in sin, born in sin, that it's conceived and born in union with Adam. And that in his first transgression, we participated. And thus, his corruption is our corruption. His rebellion is our rebellion. All of humanity lies under the sentence of judgment and faces the terrible wrath of God. Children of wrath, he says, even as the rest. In other words, all of humanity. There is none righteous, no, not one. No, not one. Beloved, this is the desperate condition of the lost. This is the, the desperate condition. All hope is lost. There is no means to save yourself. None. There is no rescue coming for you from inside of this creation. 
The picture could not be darker, could not be more hopeless, could not be more ominous. And then Paul says in verse 4, the second aspect of the rescue story, God's decisive intervention, but God. Do you see it? But God. If I were to write a trilogy along the lines of the great rescue story, falling in with all prior trilogies to have gone before me, that is where I would end the first book. I thought about ending the first book at the end of verse 3 without hope, even as the rest, and I thought nobody would buy the second volume. So it seems more appropriate that you would end the first volume with two words, but God. And then you'd have to wait a year until I finished writing it and it got published and you, know, and you could go see it in the theater. But God. What a contrast. What a contrast with the, with the plight of sinners who are born children of wrath. At the, at the darkest moment, no hope. No rescue, no way out, but God. The deliverer comes, the light arises. There is wonderful news in these two simple words, but God. These words provide a, a connection to, to what has gone before in verses 1 to 3, and they, and they provide a sharp contrast. But God. The great British preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones of the last century wrote in his fine commentary series on Ephesians, in reflecting on these two words, he says these words, quote, these two words in and of themselves in a sense, contain the whole gospel. These two words, in a sense, contain the whole gospel. But God. I mean, had God decided to destroy all of humanity because of our sin, He would have been both within His rights and well justified in doing so. But, but, Rather than act in judgment, instead he has poured out mercy and grace. But God being rich in mercy, verse 4, Paul says, because of his great love with which he loved us. The richness of the mercy of God is a common theme in the Bible. It appears in both Testaments. In Deuteronomy 34 and verse 6, it, it is how God reveals himself to Moses. Tell me your name, Moses pleads. And God reveals his name, which reveals his character and mercy. It's his character. Mercy, there in the Old Testament, is often associated with the idea of compassion, pity on those who are suffering misfortune. 
And there can be no greater misfortune, can there, than to be dead and lost in sin, separated from God, from your Creator, and facing His certain wrath, dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. There can be no more pitiful condition. And it's there that God extends His mercy. Why? Why? Why does God extend mercy to the spiritually dead who act both volitionally and constitutionally against God their Creator? Who delight in their rebellion? Who sit around thinking up ways to sin? Why? Why would God act in mercy to me? Why would God act in mercy to you? Verse 4. Because of His great love with which He's loved us. It is the love of God, my friends, that explains the great mercy of God. It is that great inner Trinitarian love, Father to Son, Son and Father to Spirit, and Spirit to Father and Son. That great and a Trinitarian love that has existed for all eternity that God then pours forth in overflowing abundance upon you and I. Love. Agape. Love that seeks the highest good of the one who is love, the object of that love, irrespective of the merit of that one receiving the love. It is not a love that is earned. It is not a love that is deserved. It is a love that is poured forth because God is love. Notice how Paul magnifies the love of God here with the adjective great. Do you see it in verse 4? The great love of God. And the adjective rich that he applies to mercy Again, do you see it? But God being rich in merciful in mercy because of His great love with which He has loved us. It's like Paul is stacking up adjectives here. He, he is trying to express that which is inexpressible. That which goes so far, so deep, so wide, so profound that no human language can possibly encompass the reality there. He's trying to describe the indescribable grace of God. Why does he call it God's rich mercy? His great love? What makes the love great? What makes the mercy rich? It is because of the unlovable, wrath-deserving nature of the objects of that mercy and love. It's you. And that's me. It is great. And it is rich. Because it is poured out on us. On us. Lest we forget this reality, 
Paul reminds us of the demonstration of God's mercy and love and how it was lavished upon us when he writes here in verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Do you see it? God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. In other words, at the, at the moment in time when we least deserved it, when there could be no possible reason to shower it upon us, it is then that God poured forth his love. Over in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, Paul writes about the same marvelous grace of God, and he writes there, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. God does not wait for us to clean up our act, as it were. In the midst of our filth, in the midst of our decay, in the midst of our spiritual death, God sent forth his Son on a mission to save the lost. How unlike us God is, huh? How unlike us God is. How prone we are to view with delight someone who is deserving of punishment, quote, getting what's coming to them, huh? You know the scene, you're... uh, you're driving down the freeway, traffic is crowded, and there is this person who's going to get ahead of everybody by cutting in and out of traffic. Right? You've been there. And you think to yourself, boy, that guy, he's, something's going to happen. And about a mile up the road, you see him pulled over on the side of the road with the highway patrol and the lights flashing, right? And go ahead. Confess now. What do you think? Yes. He got what was coming to him. And we delight in it. We delight in it. But when we cut someone off, hmm? That's when you look over your shoulder. (laughs) How unlike God we are. How closed off our hearts can be to people who are trapped in sin and and pronounce judgment upon them as unworthy of the gospel. How hard it is to remember how much we've been forgiven so that we in turn might forgive others. How unlike God we really are. Now, the specific action of God's great love and rich mercy is spelled out for us here in verses 5 and 6. Paul spells it out here, actually, in three interconnected actions that God performs on on behalf of, of all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he does it by, by the word with. You'll, you'll see the word with, and, it, and it's spoken, it's, it's used three times here in, in each of these three interconnected activities. 
the word with. And, and these activities that he speaks of are not some future hope, but they are actually a, a present reality. He speaks of it as a present reality, and it is this present reality, by the way, that, that enables us to know what is the surpassing greatness of the power of God to, toward us, as Paul prays in chapter 1 and verses 18 and 19. You see the first one here in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, right, He made us alive together with Christ. Do you see it? He made us alive together with Christ. We were made alive together with Christ. Formerly spiritually dead. But now, by a dynamic faith union with Christ, spiritually alive. Notice he inserts the little parenthetical, by grace you have been saved. In other words, we have the very life of God pulsating now through our soul. And with it, we we have a new and, and previously unknown sensitivity to spiritual truth. A desire for the things of Christ. Previously spiritually dead, unresponsive to Christ, to His Word, to the fellowship with Him. Now we find ourselves in this new place. We have been made alive together with Christ. That is in union with Christ. And now spiritual truth causes our hearts to soar. The Word of God is, is something we we long for, we desire. We now have ears to hear. Formerly, our minds were blinded by the God of this world. Now the veil has been lifted in Christ. Years ago, many years ago, there was a, a family here that were, was part of the church, and the wife was believing and the husband was unbelieving. And uh, he would come and do what many unbelieving husbands do when they come dutifully with their believing wives, which is sit there and be stone cold dead. People have an amazing ability to learn to sleep with their eyes open. But, but it was like, you know, and hey, you know what? I can see, you know what? I can see all of you all the way to the back. Okay? I'm having a good day. The eyes are working really well. I can see what's going on. I mean, not, you know, not inherently, of course, but um, most of you would make terrible card players. <laughs> Just saying. And as I would preach, you know, and they, they sat over there, and as I would preach, I mean, I could just see, man, this stuff was just like bouncing off him. Bouncing off him. It's like black marble. And in the wonderful, amazing, glorious mercy and grace of God, the scales were lifted. And this man came to believe. And I'll never forget this, because the next Sunday, after he had come to know Christ, I preached and I walked out that way, whatever, and stopped to shake his hand. And he said, he said David, that is, the, that is the best sermon I have ever heard. And I grinned, and I said, 
That's the first sermon you have ever heard. (laughs) And I wasn't kidding. Because he was dead. And now he was alive. He was cold to the things of God. And now his heart was warmed to the things of God. The transformation is incredible. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Secondly, and raised us up with him. Raised us up with him. We have been raised up with Christ. When Christ was raised from the dead, he began his return trip to glory. He had left the Father's side and and come here to earth to to accomplish the mission of to seek and to save those who were lost. And and mission accomplished, he, he returns to the Father's side, to the glory which was his from all time. And Paul says that that we have been raised up with him and joined him on that journey. Even though we are physically present in the here and now. What's he talking about? Not you will be raised up. Do you see this? He raised us, past tense, up with Christ. That is, in union with Christ, we have been raised. But we're still here. But we're still here. So what does he mean? I think what he's driving at here is is that we have been removed from the power of this world. From the lusts of the flesh. Those things that formerly drove us. Again, I would look to Romans to provide a little bit of color to this and and direct your attention to chapter 6. Where there, Paul is speaking about having died with Christ and having been raised to a newness of life with Christ. And so Romans chapter 6 and beginning in verse 4, he says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. What's he talking about? He's talking about our union with Christ. He's talking about the reality that once we were dead in Adam and now we are alive in Christ. And as Christ has been raised from the dead, it no longer has dominion over him. So we too, in union with Christ, have been raised above and separated from the powers of this world and the lusts of the flesh. They know we are no longer helplessly under their control. We are no longer helplessly under their control. And third, he says, He has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Christ is seated at the Father's right hand, Paul says in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, far above all demonic spirits. In union with Him, we were made to share in His victory and His authority over the demonic world and in the sense that it no longer holds sway over us, right? What is the condition of the dead? They were walking according to the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, they were controlled by, in our, in our pre-Christ state, we were controlled by the devil. But no longer. Before Christ, Paul says we were spiritually dead. Desperately held in sin's dark sway. But in union with Christ, we have been delivered. Delivered from the wrath to come, verse 3. That is the eschatological wrath to come. That is the the coming judgment that comes upon this world. But not only that. As Paul speaks of in Romans 6 and verses 4 and following, as I read, we have been delivered from the present tyranny of the world, the flesh, and the devil that formerly controlled us. With Christ, we are a new creation. Behold, all things have become new. I told you I could read your faces. So here's the question. So why do I still sin? So why do I still sin? Well, really, it's this. Even though we have been delivered, our enemies remain very, very powerful. And when faced with their attacks, we regularly doubt the power of Christ or forget the truth of the gospel. Jesus said it this way in John 15 and beginning in verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I need to be really, really careful here. I need to be really, really careful that you are not hearing me preach triumphalism or what some call an over-realized eschatology. So if you don't get anything else, well, I need you to get more than this, but, but I want you to get this. Okay? I am not saying that we can achieve sinless perfection. Let me repeat that. I am not saying that we can achieve sinless perfection. Third time, I am not saying we can achieve sinless perfection. That is a great error. I am not saying 
that we can escape all temptation. All temptation that comes to our thoughts, to our mouths, (laughs) to our hands. I'm not saying that. Far from it. Far from it. Because the power and the pattern of sin is woven very deeply, very, very deeply into our hearts and our minds and our bodily appetites, to be sure. And they thus present themselves, these temptations present themselves to us in, in a seemingly endless parade of various shapes and sizes, don't they? Beyond all that, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 25 that there is pleasure in sin for a season. And we would be less than honest if we didn't own up to the reality that sin is often pleasurable, at least in the moment. So, we are new creations in Christ. And we have at our disposal everything we need for life and godliness. But we're dust. We're dust. While the Spirit is willing, often the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. We live between the ages, my friends. There is the reality of who we are in Christ and this is, this is not just wishful thinking. This is reality. We have been made alive with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. We have been seated with Christ. That's true. Because you know what? If it's not, if that's not true of you, then you are still united with Adam. In which case, you are dead. And under bondage and dominion, of the world, the flesh, and the devil. There are only two options. You are dead or you are alive. Now, by the way, I'm not making an excuse for sin. When I say the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, right? There's pleasure in sin for a season. That's not like an excuse. That's an explanation. It's an explanation. There is no excuse. There is no excuse. We have at our at our at our beck and call the Spirit of God to strengthen us in the truth of the gospel because we are forgetful people. We are weak of faith and, and doubting people. So what should we do when we slip and fall? Hmm? What should we do when we slip and fall? Confess our sin to God and to others. Confess our sin to God and others and flee in haste to the gospel where we find forgiveness and cleansing. And the more diligently we practice this, the more quickly we will be able to extract ourselves from the mire into which we fall. 
A pig lives in the mud because that's their natural habitat. They like it. Christians fall into the mud, but they are not comfortable there. It is not their natural habitat. And they seek to get out of the mud as quickly as they can. One measure of Christian maturity is how quickly, when we find ourselves in the mud, that we turn to Christ and get out. And that leads us into verse 7, which is the third aspect of this great story. This great story. It began with our desperate condition in verses 1 to 3. It's followed in the second book by God's decisive intervention in verses 4 to 6. And then finally in the third book of the trilogy, God's dramatic exhibition. God's dramatic exhibition. He has seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Paul says, verse 7, so that... In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, God's rescue story, his rescue plan, is about making known his gracious character. Like a beautiful flower that that naturally blooms and displays the, the inherent glory So God, in the glorious grace of the gospel, must be displayed. And it must be displayed for all eternity. So that in the ages to come, do you see it? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What this means is the gospel is not about you. Hello. The gospel is not about you. Sin is rooted in selfishness, right? It is rooted in self-aggrandizement. Remember Satan's original... Sin, I will be like the Most High, he says. The gospel delivers us from ourselves by uniting us with Christ. And its ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal of this glorious, marvelous display of the unsurpassing riches of grace is that so God's character would be made known for all of eternity, throughout all of creation. One writer says it this way, God acted to save sinners so that they might serve to display the surpassing wealth of his grace. Why did God save you? That you might forever be a trophy of his grace. Like the bloom of a flower on a beautiful plant, you will display his glorious grace forever. By the way, newsflash, we remain forgiven sinners for all eternity. That doesn't change. 
The gospel is sweet now. It'll be even sweeter then. Even sweeter then. What makes his grace so surpassingly rich, Paul says? Again, it's because the recipients of that grace, that generosity, are his enemies. Those liable to his wrath, verse 3. Who will display or view this display of God's amazing grace? It's going to be on display for all of eternity. Who's going to see it? The cosmos. The entire creation. There are indications in the scripture, we won't track them down now, but the holy angels themselves. 1 Peter 1.12, Luke 15, 7 and 10, you can check it out on your own. Right? 1 Peter 1.12, Luke 15, 7 and 10. There's no redemption for angels. So the glorious display of the, of the grace of God in the gospel is something that they are very curious about. Revelation 5, 8 and following, I think, saved humanity. Saved humanity. Will not only be the display, but will marvel in the display. Who knows? When we get up there, we might meet somebody and say, wow, you're here? And they'll look at us and they'll say, you're here? And then they'll both say, all praise and glory to God. This is the old, old story. Do you know it? Do you know it? Do you love it? And most importantly, are you in it? Is it your story? The answer to that question is the difference between heaven and hell. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, all the riches and treasures of glory have been poured out in Christ and are ours by union with him. Who could conceive of such a plan? Who could be so merciful and loving, kind, gracious, to redeem their enemies in this way and make them their son? Oh God, in the presence, your presence, We bow our hearts in humble adoration. Thank you for saving our souls. Thank you that you're not done saving human souls. And I pray that even now, today, this morning in this place, your spirit would peel away the blinders that you might cause someone to be born again. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.